Last month, the S&P 500 in Canadian terms was up 3.6%. Uh, U.S. quality, you know, which we advocated for in bear and bull markets, is up 4.7, so adding about a percent there. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. With markets continuing to rise as we enter the month of June, Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McCaney return to their core trade ideas to see how they've performed. Have quality and low volatility ETFs run their course? Is there a better destination for short-term yield? What does it mean that equities are soaring as racial tensions boil over in the United States? In this episode, our experts provide answers to investors' most pressing questions and give expert advice on the future of ETFs. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Good morning and welcome back to the BMO Global Asset Management Weekly ETF Insights Call. I'm your host, Mark Rays. I'm the head of product for BMO GAM Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We'll be joined today by Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk, focusing on equity exposures and derivative portfolios. So thank you, Chris. And Chris, for joining us again today. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Let's dive right into an update here. So despite all the risks in the market from COVID-19 and the economic shutdown, escalating China-U.S. tensions over Hong Kong, race relations incredibly boiling over in the U.S., markets continue to hold up. Now, we've been behind a defensive growth theme with quality and low volatility ETFs kind of forming the core of that. Particularly as you look at the rebound in oil through the month of May, how have each of these factors fared through the past month? How do you feel about this trade? Does it still have merit? I'd assume you would with the market risks only rising, but please give us your thoughts on the validity of that defensive growth approach. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So, you know, a short answer to start off the top is it is still working, you know, and it's even been working in what has been pretty exceptional rallies. So I believe that April and May were the two strongest months for the S&P since 2009. And we're just continuing to see markets go higher. Um, I actually got some good economic news this morning. We're still trying to, still piecing through it, but private sector job losses in the U.S. came in at 2.8 million. The consensus was 9 million. So it came in way under consensus. So we're starting to see a little bit of a pattern of surprising to the upside and definitely seeing that uh, play through in the equity markets. But, you know, to your question, you know, we're still doing pretty well on those factors that we suggested. So last month, the S&P 500 in Canadian terms was up 3.6%. U.S. quality, you know, which we advocated for in bear and bull markets was up 4.7. So adding about a percent there. And, you know, the low vol, which, which I think becoming a forgotten child a, l- a little bit, it's up 3.3. So it's only just behind the S&P 500. So if you look at that kind of mix of quality and low vol, you're actually outperforming the index in May, which 
honestly actually surprised me a little bit from, you know, we know that quality might lag in an indiscriminate rally, you know, a junk rally, so to speak. But we're still seeing that these, these um, factors play through, you know, on a year-to-date basis, you know, a 50% mix of quality, mobile, 50-50 mix versus the S&P is about 2% outperformance. So the S&P is flat on the year. Quality lowball mix is up 2%. So we're still seeing it play out pretty well. Kind of one dynamic we did see change, particularly later in the month, started to see some life out of value. And I feel like a lot of the investment community is finally waiting for value to come back. Um, but in particular, financials, you know, U.S. financials and Canadian financials, and I, I believe we were talking last week about the banks, both north and south of the border, started to see some real signs of life. And, you know, financials being a cyclical sector, you know, that's one to kind of keep your eye on. The U.S. banks had some very strong days. You know, they, they're still quite volatile, but it looks like we're starting to see some signs of life there. So I think the core strategy of, of uh, quality and mobile still is a good positioning, you know, perhaps increasing financial plates might be interesting as well. In Canada, it's, it's pretty similar. We, you know, we have our low vol, slightly underperforming the index, underperformed by 1% May. It's, under, it's underperformed 1% year-to-date. I still think that'll be, for the long term, is, is a great exposure and a great way to play Canada. You know, I think the index does offer a couple things that that'll be doesn't have right now. One is energy, as you mentioned. Energy is up significantly off the lows. There's also gold companies that, that are more highly represented in ZCN. You know, last but not least, uh, Shopify also is in ZCN. So there's some different exposures there. So I think having a bit of data in Canada to offset against ZLB makes sense. But I still think a lion's share in ZLB just based on, you know, how we've done with that one over multiple years and backtesting and just as a strategy, I think the lion's share goes there. And, and, and last uh, but not least internationally, you know, I think the EP markets are somewhat of a risk trade. Risk was on in May. Consequently, ZEA did pretty well. ZEQ, the, the Europe quality, um, again, with that focus on really strong businesses, ZEQ was, was the next best performing strategy. So leaning into quality there, I think, still makes sense. Uh, but we did see risk on, so beta did pretty pretty well in the month uh, in EFI over, over the month of May. So overall, you know, I think... Still sticking with that approach, I think, makes sense. We're going to keep our eye on, you know, financials and, and cyclicals and value. But I don't think it's time to plant the flag of, you know, we're done just yet. And for that reason, you know, I think lowball still has a place in, in the portfolios. And certainly quality, I think, is one that we can continue to lean on. So, you know, overall, I think, you know, it's still a good positioning and um We'll stay there for now and see how things kind of play out over the next uh, next few months. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And the thing I take away is the U.S. quality WQ continuing to outperform the S&P 500. That's a great testament to that ETF where it's, it's doing well in quickly rising markets as well as protecting on the downside. So quite pleased with that uh, factor exposure. Now let's, let's turn and think a little bit about fixed income. Following on the rise of the equity markets, have we seen a similar tightening of credit spreads? You know, we've got uh, Macklin coming in today at the Bank of Canada. You know, the expectation from markets, anyways, is that the overnight rate is, is not going to be impacted. It's going to stay around at 25 points for about a year. So, really, you want to be thinking about what does credit exposure do to your do your portfolio. Now, we've talked about both high quality. Co- credit and triple B credit as our, as our newer exposures. 
what do you think of the distinction between those two ETFs and how does this trade look going forward considering the market risk? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And certainly we have seen credit spreads, you know, come in from where they, they spiked up to in March. However, you know, still elevated relative to where um, they were entering uh, entering that month and entering 2020. If we compare that to the equity markets, as Chris Heeks mentioned, uh, in the U.S., equities pretty much back to where they were to start the year, which given the amount of risks we, we currently see in the global market um, is a little bit surprising. You know, if it was December 2019 um, and you had told investors um, all of the things that the global economy would have to be facing right now in 2020, I would assume they would have marked down their their um, their equity valuations, you know, given given all those risks. However, again, we're here at essentially those, those same levels. Uh, with credit spreads, uh, it is telling a different story. And so, if we take a look at those higher quality spreads, so so the double A's in Canada entering 2020 at about 50 basis points, a little bit under 50 basis points, spiked up to you know about 1.4, 1.3, 1.4. Um, and are now down to about 75 basis points. So there, there has been a significant contraction there, again, especially from the peak, uh, but still elevated, you know, 50% higher than where they were to start the year, and still the highest level really since maybe back to 2011, 2012. You know, there were a couple of other um, spikes along the way, but um, relatively still the highest level since uh, 2011, 2012. So in terms of investment grade or the high quality credit, you know, we think that actually presents an opportunity. So again, it's, it argues for caution in equity markets and in risky assets. So um, I think that really plays well to what Chris was talking about with having you know an exposure in low vol and those sort of less risky type equity investments. In the fixed income world here, we see that as an opportunity to maybe lock in some of that spread to invest in really high quality assets. As you mentioned, overnight rates are not going to be moving um, anytime soon. And so being able to pick up a little bit of yield over those very low numbers with high quality assets underpinning them, we think makes a lot of sense. Comparing that to the triple B spread, um, so let's call that the more risky end of the investment grade spectrum, you see a similar story. So obviously, Credit spreads spiked in March. They have come back a little bit um, from from that spike, but they have not come down as much as we saw these double A spreads come down. So to put some numbers behind it, um, entering 2020, uh, a little bit under 150 basis points, um, spiked up all the way to over 300. So a doubling of the credit spreads essentially. We're now back down to about 230, 240 basis points. So still quite elevated, again, relative to where we were to start the year in 2020, um, but a little bit down from from the peak and still relatively high relative to history as well. So again, those two spikes in maybe 2011, and then we had that other one in 20 or early 2016, February 2016, we see spreads really elevated there as well. And so in the past, we've argued on, on these calls that triple Bs historically offer the best risk-reward ratio. Um, there's still investment grade and the yields there, the, obviously the, the spreads are, are quite high. The risk with these, with these uh, investments is that through this economic slowdown, if, that, if the rebound is not as strong as, as investors are forecasting, some of these triple Bs you know, could potentially see a downgrade into the high yield 
market and, and face selling pressure. And so that's the risk you're taking with triple Bs in order to get that higher spread. So investors that are willing to ride that out, that have maybe a longer term view and are okay with near term selling pressure, should there be some downgrades, you might want to take a look at that triple B spread. Pretty decent pickup over 2% above what AAA assets are giving you. And so you're locking in a nice spread there for a fixed income security that's a pretty decent return. Again, as long as you're willing to ride out the potential short-term risks associated with that. Um, and for those more cautious investors, we think the AA spread, the, the high-quality bonds, are still offering decent value. Again, both of these markets, though, are, are kind of indicating downside risks are still elevated and are, are still higher than, than what they were to start the year. And so uh, might be a nice contrast as well with equities, with investors looking to trim that equity exposure potentially as a way to still get some return um, with less of the downside risk. Thanks, Chris. Uh, interesting that the bond market is a little more concerned, it seems, on, on macro uh, risk than the equity market. So interesting contrast there. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. Before we return to this episode, we want to remind you to check out our new Deep Dive episodes, where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite and provide valuable talking points for your client conversations. Our most recent episode featured ZPay, also known as the BMO Premium Yield ETF, an innovative solution that pays investors to wait out a crisis. To learn more, check the episode notes below. Now, back to this episode. Let's look at another way to add growth exposure to portfolios. We've been receiving questions on our newer mid-cap and small-cap U.S. exposures. I don't think we've talked about those on these calls. So can you just briefly introduce those ETFs and talk about how you would use them in a portfolio you know, relative to an S&P 500 large-cap exposure? And, and as you do so, if you have some thoughts on, on differentiating between mid-cap and small-cap, thanks. Sure. And so the, the mid-cap and small-cap exposures we offer are also part of that S&P family. And so really, if you look at it as, as one sort of group of indices here, it's the S&P 1500 uh, we're looking at. And so that's made up of obviously the S&P 500, which is those large-cap companies, the index that everyone knows. And then the next 400 companies are considered mid-cap, and the, the distinction here is, is simply the market cap of these stocks. And then the bottom 600 names um, are, are in that small-cap universe, so in, in all 1,500 companies. And they have the same inclusion factors, um, and so it's really that market cap where you're drawing the line in between which index a company should be in. So those 1,500 companies, um, the goal of S&P is to cover about 90% of the U.S. market cap universe. And so you're getting over 80% of that uh, through the S&P 500, maybe about 82%. Um, the mid-cap is another 6%, and then the, the S&P 600, the small cap, is another 3%. So you're getting a little bit over 90% of the total market uh, in the U.S. between these three um, different, different indices. And so obviously, you know, the S&P 500, that large cap exposure is what, is what everyone knows. Certainly in recent years, that has been um, the best performer out of these three indices as well. But if you look at a long-term time horizon, there's an argument to be made that small caps 
and mid caps ultimately would would outperform um, large caps. And the, the 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 theory there is, and of course the numbers are there, but the theory is that um, obviously starting from a smaller base, there's just a lot more room to grow. And the argument is that Amazon, of course, was once a small cap company or was once a smaller company, and 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 now look where it is today. You know, if you invest in Amazon as of today, you're not going to get that same element of growth going forward. And so the, the small and mid caps starting from a smaller base just have that greater growth potential. Um, in terms of how they differentiate between, you know, the S&P 500 and then, and then the, the mid and small, you know, obviously there's different sector exposures that you're getting. The S&P 500 really starting to get a lot more exposed to that IT sector. Um, you know, potentially you want U.S. equities, but you want to differentiate away from that. And you want that, again, that growth potential we're talking about. You know, the mid and small, they have a lot more sector diversity. There's uh, a lot more industrial exposure in, in both of those indices. There's a lot more uh, real estate and utilities as well. And so, you know, you, you, you can start to see how you might be able to spread out your, your overall sector risk uh, when you start adding mid and small caps. Now, the other thing that plays into this fact is that the S&P 500 and those larger companies tend to be multinationals. They tend to have a lot of their sales exposure and revenue exposure to other countries, not just the U.S. And some estimates are up to as high as 50% of U.S. large caps um, have revenue that's generated outside of the U.S. And so there's a global exposure to some of these large cap companies. And if you are of the mindset that you know, the U.S. economy is going to be stronger than, than other parts in the world, you know, you might start to look at mid caps and small caps um, um, as that exposure. You know, traditionally, the small cap element has really been that pure, you know, exposure to U.S. consumer and U.S. market, U.S. economy, as traditionally, you know, most small caps are really just running their business in that country. Um, all of their customers are in that country because they're, they're generally relatively small small companies. And so if you really want to peer bet on the, the growth of the S&P, or sorry, the U.S. economy, the small cap might be where you want to go. Maybe you want a little bit more liquidity, though. You want a little bit more established companies. You want to start looking at the mid-cap sector. And the other thing you might get with mid-caps is, Okay, most of these are, um, you know, leveraged to the U.S. economy as well. They're they're not very diverse in terms of uh, their their country exposure, but you do have to remember that mid caps um, are often suppliers to those large caps. So if if large cap companies might get hit by by slower global growth, that could still trickle down into those mid caps because they tend to be suppliers into those into those large cap companies. However, you do get added liquidity. Um, on top of what you're seeing in the small caps, and of course, a bit more um, financial stability, you know, less leverage and things like that in the mid cap. So those are the distinctions between small cap, mid cap, and large cap. You can potentially take a global view um, and distill that into what sort of market cap exposure I want in my U.S. equities. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. You know, maybe focusing on how much of an exposure to the U.S. in terms of revenues you really want to have, couple that with the growth factor. ZMID, ZMID for the mid caps, ZSML for the small caps, two new interesting uh, exposures that we brought out this year. just want to ask one more question before we go to the lines. And a reminder again, star six, if you do have a question for Chris or Chris. I uh, do want to ask about a sector idea 
we've been getting more questions in on healthcare. Obviously, it's the forefront of everyone's mind with the COVID-19 crisis pandemic. And certainly with the lack of a diversified healthcare sector in Canada, when we look at the U.S. healthcare, it's pretty much recovered to pre-COVID levels. What is your outlook on this sector going forward? Is it is this overplayed or is this something which is far more of a secular trade that investors can, can hold on to? Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's definitely a secular trade. It's a long-term trade. You know, I think the healthcare industry in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, is, is 100% weed companies. So it's not a uh, you know full-service sector, so to speak, when it comes to healthcare. You know, U.S. Is, is by far the kind of the global leader, some big healthcare companies in Europe, but by far U.S. is, 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 is the major player in this space. You know, looking at it, it's, it's up close to 50% off the lows. Definitely, you know, hit a real nice tailwind. Fortunately, COVID was one of those, and we're seeing a lot of companies kind of in the race to develop therapies and, and a vaccine. You know, I think another catalyst was Biden getting the nomination, securing that. And, you know, I think both Biden and Trump are relatively supportive of the sector uh, on an overall basis. So I think, you know, those are definitely a couple of the catalysts. I think as a Canadian investor, you, you certainly want exposure to the sector. I mean, it just, I mean, obviously the, the, the secular demand and the, and the demographics, the fact that it's, you know, you talk about the, you know, economically sensitivity, sensitivity of industries, you know, healthcare is, healthcare is a need, you know, and uh, so when you have a need, I mean, there's the demand profile is there, so to speak. Um, but yeah, in the short term, I think it's, it's up a lot. I wouldn't look at it as, say, a conviction call right now, like a, a quote-unquote COVID trade to make you know some fast money. I don't think that's that's the way to look at it right now. Um, as a long-term trade, I think it's you know, it's a very prudent trade. You know, looking at getting exposure to healthcare. You know, I just took a look at you know we talked about ZUQ, the ETF, uh, U.S. quality. We we're talking about, and I think for good reason. There's 18% uh, exposure to healthcare in, in that fund. You know, the healthcare companies within ZUQ are up 6%. So you can get, you know, like let's say half your equities are in um, the U.S. And you can get decent healthcare just by having a broad ETF like a ZUQ. Uh, the S&P 500 has slightly less, about 15% uh, in the healthcare sector, uh, with those companies returning 5% year to date. So, you know, I think ZUQ is still a really good way to get it. You know, I, I, I it's not, you know, it was compelling about a month ago, you know, Few weeks ago, I, I don't think it's as compelling from a short-term basis, but as a long-term, I think it's definitely something you want to have in your portfolio. And you know, the healthcare ETF is is a good way to get exposure to that. You know, if I had to pick one one sector, and maybe we can talk about this you not know, another time, but I think it's I think it's the, the financials is the one to watch. And having a little bit of exposure to financials, I think, really balances out that that call we have to defensive growth with the with the quality and the low ball. So, you know, that might be one to table for, you know, a little further discussion. But, yeah, definitely healthcare, I think, is, is something you want to have the exposure to over the long term. And ZUH and ZHU give you some good tools to, to help accomplish that, as well as broad market like ZUQ or ZSP ETFs. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And, you know, you touched on the two different tickers. Of course, you've got the currency hedge versus uh, full exposure to the U.S. market. So different ways that uh, you can play the U.S. healthcare sector. At this point, I'd like to check if there are any questions on the line for Chris and Chris. Hi, Chris and Chris. Everyone here. How's it going? Hey, good. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you guys for the call today. Very interesting stuff. 
Um, I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on JDQ now uh, that the EU proposed the $800 billion stimulus package last week? Thank you. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, you know, I you know, mentioned off the top, um, you know, I think EFI in Europe, it's, it's, it's kind of a risk trade when you look at the menu of um, options and risk is on right now. So, um, you know, risk is on for a couple of reasons. COVID cases are declining. Europe, uh, certainly they're declining uh, pretty well in comparison to the world. You know, we're seeing stimulus kind of globally, but certainly in Europe. So EFI actually outperformed uh, U.S. last month. So, you know, EFI was up about 4% and the U.S. was 35 Uh That EQ is, is, is still one of the best performing factors. So we mentioned that quality is, you know, really doing well in the up as well as the down. So one of the reasons we launched that EQ is we acknowledge that, you know, this is a region that, you know, you want to get exposure to for diversification purposes. But, you know, there's a lot going on in Europe and you want to kind of have some built-in kind of hedges to your equity as you go there. And I think that's what you get with the quality. You know, you'll get exposure to growth, but, you know, if things go sour for whatever reason, you know, whether it's, you know, Brexit or just, you know, COVID, the second wave, or for whatever kind of geopolitical reasons, ZEQ is a really uh, good exposure to be in because, you know, these are businesses that are profitable and have lots of cash. So EP has been more constructive, you know, as, as we tend, as we're getting more positive news, you know, that's a trend that's likely to continue. And I think ZEQ is, is, continues to be a really prudent way to get exposure to equities in Europe. So I like it there for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe just to add to that, um, you know, I think I think what what really made news with that stimulus package um, that was announced was that the the plan is to to fund that through EU bonds, and so that's something that's that's never been done before. You know, each country still sells their own bonds that are in the EU. Up until now, the EU has been a pure monetary union. You know, issuing bonds, EU bonds, moves that closer to a fiscal union as well. And it was actually, you know, I think quite a positive um, development for investors that are worried about, you know, is the EU going to break up? Are some of these countries going to start leaving? What's really going to happen when when this, this the economies are really stressed? You know, for the first time, we actually saw a step towards fiscal union. Traditionally, you know, Germany and some of the others have, have shied away from that. But it was actually Germany and France that, that laid the groundwork for this. And so, they're really putting their own economies behind the EU itself. And so really, it's a sign of solidarity there. For all the um, reasons Chris mentioned, I think you still want a quality exposure there. You want quality stocks um, because there are still risks that, that remain. But I, I think overall, that, that stimulus package was actually, you know, it'd be getting a lot more play um, here in North American media if there weren't so many other things to uh, uh, to be talking about, because it, it was uh, really a big step for, for Europe and the EU. Thank you. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, my question is, uh, so we've seen the Canadian dollar really popped over... One and a half percent so far this week, right? So about seventy-three ninety this morning. So that's the strongest level we've seen since the first week of March. So my question is, uh, is that due to inherent strength in CAD, according to you, or as opposed to U.S. dollar weakness? And what is your thoughts on on hedging going forward? Thank you. You know, I think it's really you're looking at U.S. dollar as a risk-off asset, right? And I, you know, if you put if you put the U.S. dollar up against the chart of COVID cases, you know, U.S. dollar Canada against COVID cases, you'd actually find they they overlap pretty closely. So, you know, what what we're really, you know, in my mind, seeing at a high level is a reversion to the mean. You know, where 
we were at kind of that 132, 133 level before the crisis. Um, so, you know, when that U.S. dollar got above 140, we saw a lot of a lot of interest from advisors to hedge. I still think there's a little bit of a trade there, but I think it's, you know, as we revert to this mean um, and risk goes back on, you know, I think actually you'll, you know, as this comes back down to the level we were before, you'll actually want to make sure you have U.S. dollars in, in the portfolio to give you a hedge against the next move up. So I still think there's a bit of a trade there. We're still above, you know, that 132 level. We did see some hedging interest, uh, but I think, you know, start to take it back to neutral weight, you know, getting close to neutral weight and uh, have some U.S. dollars to give you a hedge on your portfolio. Thank you. Hey, good morning, Chris. Is uh, Sheldon here. Uh, question. With his accounts now yielding 50 deeps, could you suggest some ideas to park short-term cash? What are some alternative short-term fixed income ideas that would yield clients more and the risk they would have to take to achieve it. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I would say obviously, you know, 50 basis points, um, you know, you're not getting much actual return from that. If you want if you want your assets to, to be put to work um, and work for you, you kind of have to move out a little bit from there. You know, unfortunately, if you're talking about cash and cash-like vehicles, you know, you're, you're not really going to get much yield from them. And that's, and that's really just, just the way it is. You know, our our, uh, our ZFT is our ultra short-term corporate bond, and so that's less than one-year uh, bond, and so you're not getting much duration risk there at all. You're getting a little bit of a pickup over 50 basis points, but it's still a relatively small number. You know, in order to get a decent yield or return on, on your assets, um, you do have to accept, I think, some duration risk. And I'm looking at our short corporate bond, ETF ZCS. So that's corporate bonds between one and five years. Um, and it has a duration of about three. So there is a little bit of volatility with duration there, but you're going to get about a 2% yield to maturity. So that's obviously a decent pickup over 50 basis points, um, but there is a little bit of volatility in there potentially uh, if you see rates actually going up. But I think that's really what, what investors are going to have to do. Um, you know, if you want that security of cash, um, you really just have to accept that there's not much getting paid. And if you want some element of, you know, return for, for your investment, you do have to take on a little bit of duration risk. I, you know, I would say at least on the short end, we don't see rates going up anytime soon. So you might be a little bit comfortable, you know, accepting at least a couple of years duration risk in order to get a 2% return. Thanks, Chris. Okay. I'm not hearing further questions for Chris and Trish. I would like to Thank everyone for joining us this morning. We we really appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate your questions and uh, listening into the conversation. So thank you for that. Of course, thank you to Chris McKaney and Chris Heeks for your insights, for your trade ideas, for your market updates. We appreciate you giving us actionable ideas to, to take back to our own desk. So thank you for that. With that, once again, I'd like to thank everyone for joining the call. Be well. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris McKaney, and Chris Heeks for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard a timely update on the low volatility and quality ETFs that can be used as core holdings in your client portfolios, as well as some interesting ideas for gaining safe and reliable fixed income exposure. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please contact your regional BMO ETF specialist. Stay tuned for future episodes by hitting the subscribe button. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please contact 
Andrew Vachon at A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment tax or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.